If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And they were advised to pull the bunks away from the walls and always leave the top bunk unoccupied so that if there was a, anything did fall, you know, they had a better chance. That was Juliet Gardner talking about the experiences of people who lived in Chislehurst Caves during the Second World War. And I realised just before the film ran out that he wasn't here. He disappeared completely into some other world. Where he was was back at Passchendaele. And that was Julia Cave recounting her experiences of interviewing First World War veterans. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents, or you could take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Faced with the prospect of aerial bombardment during the Second World War, the people of Britain often had to find shelter wherever they could. One such location was at Chislehurst Caves in Kent, which became a wartime retreat for thousands of people. We sent our books editor, Matt Elton, to visit the cave in the company of Juliet Gardner, a leading historian of the home front in the Second World War. We're here in Chislehurst Caves. Um, what can we see around us? Well, we can, we're actually sitting at the moment, we're sitting at the entrance to what was known as the cathedral, but in fact is more like a church, but it is part of the caves. Um, and there's an altar and there are seats for people to have you know, for church services. It was consecrated by the Bishop of Rochester in 1941 and it hasn't been deconsecrated. Okay. So in theory, it could still be used for services. Fantastic, excellent. And um, this is just uh, part of a huge network of tunnels, isn't it? Yeah. It's, um, and caves is actually a misnomer. They're not natural caves. They were formed, I mean, they're man-made in the sense that they were formed as mines. I mean, chalk, these are on chalk hills, and chalk was mined here. Um, not Nobody knows quite when it started, but it certainly is mentioned in an Anglo-Saxon chronicle okay. of the, I think, the 13th century. So they're really old. They're very, really very old, and they've been used for a number of different purposes, of course. 
course. Mm. But as I say, it's a bit of a misnomer to call them caves because they were man-made. I mean, they're, they're mines, basically. Mm. But of course, they're not mined anymore. No, fantastic. And obviously, we're here to talk about their use in the Second World War specifically. But what do we get a sense of their earlier history? What things were they used for before that? Well, I mean, I think, I imagine they were always used a little bit for sort of sheltering in. Now, during the First World War, oh, there was a railway. I mean, they were used for mining, and they were used for that was what they were originally, I mean, not originally, but that's certainly what they were used for in the 19th century. Mm. And there was a railway constructed in, I think, 1865, which presumably, again, was to carry, you know, lumps of chalk from deep inside, because there are three caves, and the third one, or caverns, let's call them caves, yes. <laughs> we know they're not really. Um, the third one is, is very far deep, in, you know, quite, quite a distance, so there was a railway constructed. Then during the First World War, they were used as a sort of offshoot of Woolwich Arsenal. They were used to store ammunition in. And in fact, in parts of the caves, you can see sort of little places where it had been burnt, you know, sparks have obviously hit them. And there's a sort of yellowish tinge, mm. which is, again, comes from the ammunition. Now, after the First World War, they were used to grow mushrooms, ideal conditions for mushroom growing. The interwar years, they were used for growing mushrooms. Um, and obviously those were picked and they were taken out and they were sold or they were exported or whatever. Um, but they were also used for preparation for war. They were used for exercises, you know, um, things like gas attack, exercises. I mean, not the real thing, because um, after the First World War, of course, everybody expected that the next war there would be a ga gas attack. Mm. So there weren't. There were never gas attacks in this country. And they weren't, in, they weren't on battlefields either. But that this, these caves were used for that, those sort of exercises. And once the war started in September 1939, um, people did sometimes come here and here and shelter, but not very many because there really was nothing to shelter from because no. the phony war lasted for uh, more than, you know, pretty much a year. And it, But it was when the Blitz started, of course, in September 1940, that's when it became um, a shelter. People came here to shelter. And at one point, I think there were 15,000 um, people sheltering here, sort of nightly, families, children. There were special trains laid on from Cannon Street to bring Londoners, because of course it was London that took the worst of the Blitz, certainly in the early days. Mm. Then it spread out more. So, um, and of course, originally people would just have to sleep on the bare earth, which must have been very cold. I mean, they might bring a blanket or something like that. But, uh, you know, that was pretty, but gradually, obviously, there was ventilation, sanitation, there were food to haul, you know, there were food stalls set up. So people, though people often brought their own, you know, thermos and sandwiches and things like that. Bunks were put in. Amazing. There was this church was um, sort of constructed. And it was, the idea was it was supposed to be a cathedral. I mean, it's pretty small, but it has got a dome, which is lined in granite. You can just see it if you have a torch. It has got a dome, which is a cupola, really, which is like um, a cathedral, though, of course, it was, you know, the size of it makes it much more like a church. There was also a hospital here. There are always rumours that, or I've read, that a children's hospital was evacuated here. I don't think that's true. I think the Red Cross set up a... Um, a 
a hospital for those who were injured, you know, you know, and in fact, it was never hit. I mean, so that, that there, weren't, there weren't, wasn't bomb damage, but obviously there were injuries, you can imagine, with that number of people here. Yeah, yeah. So the Red Cross set up a hospital, and no doubt people came from the surrounding area to the Red Cross hospital. And um, that you, there, there were, you know, there were authorised sellings of, selling of food and things like that. The WVS helped out. People get cups of tea and, you know, oh. canteen. The sort of things that they would have had down the tubes too, you know. Not at first. I mean, everything was pretty primitive at I first. I was going to say, actually, I mean, what would have been the situation like for people who were among the first to stay here? Was it just a case of sleeping on the floor and then going back in the daytime or did they stay for any length of time? Normally they would just stay during the daytime and then they'd go back, uh, sorry, they'd stay during the night time because it was a night blitz. Mm. Um, before September 1940 there had been an, a number of daytime, daytime attacks but hadn't actually affected um, mm. around here. And by the time start of the blitz in September 1940, um, about a thousand people had already been killed by, wow. um, civilians had already been killed by enemy action. But people would come here, that's why the special trains were laid on for city workers and people who worked and lived in London, the East End or wherever was getting, you know, really badly hit by the Blitz. And they'd come out here with their bundles of stuff, you know, blankets, a pillow maybe, you know, stuff for the children, as I said, sandwiches perhaps a thermos flask, something yeah. like that. So they'd finish work, get the train and come get here the for the night. And come here, and then catch stay the, train the night, um, have a quick wash, you know, maybe make themselves a cup of tea if they could, um, and uh, then go back to work in London or go back to their homes in London. You know, the women and children both go back to school. Mm. Um, they didn't live here all the time. No. Um, and in the V, later on, of course, in the war, 1944, from uh, really just after D-Day until the beginning of 19, so the early spring of 1945, the V1 and V2 rockets, then people started using the caves again. I and see. they were advised to go into the very deepest cave. Much deeper than we are here. Yes, no. the third cave is, well, it's further in, too, mm. and it's further away from the mouth. And they were advised to pull the bunks away from the walls and always leave the top bunk unoccupied so that if there was a, anything did fall, you know, they had a better chance, let's put it like that. But luckily nothing ever did. So The B1 and B2s were particularly terrifying, of course, because you never knew quite where they were going to fall. You know, and by the, by the time you heard them, it was usually too late. So, so you'd hear them in here? You would... I doubt if you'd hear them here. You might have heard them, you know, near the entrance, mm. I think. But that's what terrified people in their own homes. Yeah. Because, yes. you know. But that's why, as I said, they were advised to go as deep in as they could. Mm. And, um, so it wasn't until 1944 that really the mass staying of people in these caves started? No, no, it on. started in the Blitz. It started in September yeah. 1940. Okay. And then after the Blitz was over in May, 19, May the 10th, 1941, um, though nobody realised at the time that it was over, but it was effectively, though of course there were any, subsequent enemy attacks, then most people didn't come here. So there was a know? period in which people... Yeah stayed here much less and much then it picked better. up again. Fewer, rather pe fewer people stayed here, yeah, far fewer. Yeah. But then it picked up again as it were when the V1s and V2s yeah. started to come, and then there are, but there were never as many as there were during the Blitz. There were perhaps only about two thousand. Okay, and maybe they may, some of them, no doubt, came down from London. Some might have come from the local area. 
Okay. And at what point did the infrastructure that we hear about, the church, the hospitals, all those kind of things, did that was that always here or was there a time? No, when no, that was, that was built, you know, during during the war or bit converted. I mean hewn really, I suppose is the word. I mean they'd hew out some rocks. I mean this would been a na- this would have been a natural we're looking at the church now, and that would have been a natural cave, but it was sort of made more church like, yes, you know, yes. there were some sort of pillars and things like yes. that. And the hospital again, I imagine that the Red Cross just took over the most suitable space. Yes. Which quite yes. a large space and they took that over as a hospital it's and, strange um, to think of all those buildings like an actual community just living down here, down here it's a strange absolutely. thing and uh, children running around of course and by 1944 they had started to, there were always rules in the caves and it was organised um, the caves were sort of regulated if you like by a committee which included a, 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 a vicar um, Canon Lum I think his name was and it included perhaps I think the owner of the caves and perhaps I'm sure one or two representatives from you know regular shelters and that sort of thing and they regulated it and um, originally you could only um, you if you were didn't use your pitch they were known as pitches you had a pitch um, if you didn't use your pitch for 20 days then you lost your right to it but when the v1s and v2s started to come then they regulated it down to three days because they reckoned if you hadn't hadn't been here for three days chances are you you were dead so, um, and, uh, you know, they made things, rules like lights out had to be at 10.30, there was no music after 9 o'clock, children were, um, uh, had to be in their pitches by 9 o'clock, and the motto really was, come early and stay put. Fantastic. And what sort of atmosphere do you think would have been down here at this point? Well, I think actually people very much, during the Blitz and during the V1s and V2s, they very much like to be with other people. It was a very, it could be, I mean, you wouldn't know, I think, down here that there was a raid on. You might have heard the um, siren go, well, that sort of probably alerted you to come in. But obviously most people came in early, whether there was a raid or not, during the Blitz, because, you know, you couldn't wait till um, you got on a train and you made a regular part of your routine. Mm. I think the atmosphere, I mean, I, I mean, obviously people were a little bit anxious and they were certainly anxious about those people left outside mm. when there was a raid on. But I think it was, on the whole, it was pretty friendly. I mean, it was it was sort of, you know, um, people bought their, their things and they shared things. They got, I mean, they must have got to know each other pretty well, you know, as a, you'd get to know the people in the next pitch, you know, or queuing up for a couple of tea mm. or something like that. I think it was quite a jolly atmosphere. There, were, there was a choir in the, um, in the church. There was a piano down here. People used to play the piano and have a sing-song. There was um, there were concerts, you know, put on impromptu concerts down here. Um, there would be dancing, you know, and this sort of thing. So it would have been quite a... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of space. There were yes. A lot went on. And the Duke of Kent, in fact, visited the caves on a visit, you know, a sort of morale-boosting visit. And he visited, I think, only a couple of days before he was killed in an air crash. Um, uh, he, he, he was in the... The RAF, and um, so it was a pretty active place, I think, mm. and probably people regarded it as home. Mm. For us, you know, for, uh, they were here so regularly, yes. they regarded it as home. I mean, there's an idea about the war in kind of the popular imagination that it was a period in which everyone banded together, and there was a sense of like, you know, genuine camaraderie. Is is that the case down here then? Do you think? I think 
there is a case, but I think we must never forget that, I mean, I think one of the myths, if you like, of the Second World War is that all class divisions were sort of forgotten or ironed out, and I think that's not true. I think on the whole, these would have been working people, working class people who came in, because often middle class people had an Anderson shelter in their own back garden, or they had perhaps a basement in their house where they could shelter. So I think a bit like the tubes, on the whole, these would have been sort of working people. Mm. So I don't think there was much much class intermingling, and um, but I think on the whole there was you know there was quite a bit of camaraderie, yeah. and I mean there was a lot of grumbling I'm sure, <laughs> but yes. um, I'm sure there was a lot of fun too, and you know it, was, it went on for long. I mean the Blitz went on from um, September to May the next year, so you know people needed entertaining, they mm. needed you know something to to do. So and I thought that would build up camaraderie too. Mm. And there was a baby war down here, wasn't there? Jordan? There was a baby. There was one baby was born down here, no doubt, in the Red Cross Hospital down here. And, and her, her middle name, I think, was Caverna. Fantastic. Excellent. And, and so at what point did the caves stop becoming used? I suppose once the, you know, the war had finished? Once the war was over, the caves stopped being used as a shelter in you know, 1945. Um, and there was an attempt, apparently, to grow mushrooms. But because there had been so many people down here, you know, the warmth of bodies, it had got too warm for oh, mushroom really? growing. And also, of course, it wasn't only that, it was also that, you know, mushrooms were being imported. It mm. wasn't like a, Britain was importing much more, um, was able to import much more food, of course, after the war, because the import of food had been very difficult during the war, very dangerous. And um, I think there was an attempt to sort of grow mushrooms. It really wasn't successful. So since then, really, it's been a tourist attraction where people come and see and try to imagine what it was like during the Second World War to live this subterranean, this troglodyte life. Mm, yes. I mean, how much light was there down here? That's the other thing. Well, of course, we're sitting here pretty much in the dark, but there were lights um, in all the sort of niches and, um, you know, crannies and nooks and crannies. So that actually there was quite a lot of light. Mm. Yeah, they were pretty light because, of course, they would, I mean, you know, A, it was dark outside, but, of course, they, they were they're dark down here. And um, there were all these lights and there were maps and things. And apparently people very, and we sit here imagining getting lost in the, all these tunnels and things um, but it's not actually I mean it's quite a big space but it's not a massive space and people very soon accustom themselves to thinking oh yes that jutting you need to turn right at that jutting out bit of rock or you know there's a can originally of course there was only candles for light um, but then later on they become paraffin lamps and eventually electricity was mm. That's amazing. They had electricity down mm. here. Yes. And I mean, in terms of how common this kind of experience was during the war, are there any other similar sites? Yes. Yes, there's, yes there's... There, are, there are similar caves. I mean, there are caves at Ramsgate, there are caves, I think, at Folkestone. Mm. There are certainly caves in, um, in the north of England um, where um, there are some, and people would shelter under railway arches, they would shelter down the tube. It's a very natural human instinct when things are raining on you from above to want to burrow down. And um, so I think people would burrow down wherever there were nat natural caves or something like this, or you know, maybe mines. A lot of 
mines, of course, were used during the war, particularly in Wales, for storing national treasures, things like the paintings from the National Gallery and things like that. But yes, I mean, sheltering underground, I mean, some people sheltered in public shelters, uh, people who had a garden could have an Anderson shelter, which was quite effective, but a lot of people, I mean, nothing was effective from a direct hit. I mean, that was, that was, that was it, I'm afraid. But um, I think, um, you know, during, but of course, as the Blitz wore on, people got a bit sort of cavalier, and they would, I mean, sometimes, of course, they would shelter just under the stairs or something like that, but they got a bit cavalier and they got exhausted. I think that's one of the things we must never forget about the Blitz, was it was totally exhausting. You never got a decent night's sleep. I mean, you got a much better night's sleep down here. And in fact, pilots from our members of the, the, the women's army Army Air Force, I'm sorry, Auxiliary Air Force, Women's Auxiliary Air Force, who were stationed at Biggin Hill, often came here for a good night's sleep because, you know, they needed to sleep because they might be, you know, they'd be on duty the next day. That was Juliet Gardner. Juliet has written a piece about Chislehurst Caves, which appears in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. Also in this issue, we offer a different perspective on Henry VIII's six wives, we explain why the Vikings were such feared seafarers, and we follow the tale of the Chinese Long March. You can get hold of our March edition in all good newsagents and in our digital formats. For our next section, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The remains of at least four people thought to have died in the 19th century have been discovered on the beach of a Ministry of Defence site in Portsmouth Harbour. The remains, revealed following recent storms and flooding, were found at Burrow Island, also known as Rat Island. The site is a known convict's burial ground. It is possible that the individuals were either convicts or possibly prisoners of war of French or American origin. They likely came from the floating prisons that were moored in the harbour. The remains have been sent to a laboratory to be cleaned and analysed. Researchers hope to be able to identify the sex, age and stature of the individuals. In other news, a high court battle over where the remains of Richard III should be buried is to get underway on Thursday. The judicial review, which was due to take place last November, but was adjourned after the court agreed to allow Leicester City Council to make representations as a party, is expected to last for two days. The Judicial Review will examine the Justice Secretary's decision to authorise the exhumation and reinterment of the monarch's remains in Leicester. It has been brought by a group of Richard III's distant relatives, the Plantagenet Alliance Limited, who are campaigning to see the former king reburied in York. Meanwhile, two diaries by a soldier which describe life on the front line during the First World War have been discovered in Devon. They were found by a resident in a chest in her attic when she was moving house in Plymouth. The diaries were written by Herbert Cecil Alger while he was serving in the first Royal Devon Yeomanry and cover a period from September 1915 to July 1918. The resident, Valerie Harper, has tried, but so far failed, to find the previous owners of the house to see if she can trace Mr Alger's family and return his diaries. Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Half a century ago, on the 50th anniversary of the First World War, the BBC broadcast its landmark series, The Great War. 
Produced in conjunction with the Imperial War Museum, The Great War was based on a number of interviews with surviving veterans. Despite the original series being shown over 26 parts, the vast majority of the footage was never broadcast. So now, as we approach the centenary of the conflict, a new film has been made that shows some of this extra material for the first time. Entitled I Was There, it will be broadcast this Friday on BBC Two. Earlier in the week, I headed over to Broadcasting House to meet Julia Cave, who was the original interviewer for the 1964 series. And I began by asking her how she had first become involved in the Great War. In 1963, Tony Essex, who was one of the producers, came and asked me if I would work in it. I had been working on What's My Line, which was a very popular Sunday night programme where I found the challengers. So I'd been used to going out and finding people, and I think that's perhaps what it was. I also directed the programme. But I said, look, Tony, honestly, I don't really know anything about the First World War. And he said, don't worry about that. He said, here's a book by Barbara Tuckman called The Guns of August. I was just off on holiday. Take that, read it, come back. So that's what I did. And um, I'm afraid I really didn't know anything much about the First World War until after I'd spent a bit of time working on it. But I came back and found, to my horror, that while I'd been away, Tony had advertised for First World War veterans. And my office, which was in a house in Hammersmith Grove, which um, was rather an appalling kind of an office, we were all there, and um, it was down the road from Lime Grove. I think there was no room at Lime Grove for us. And my office was completely full of sacks of mail, completely unacknowledged, and with things sticking out of them, like diaries and photographs, even medals, old tobacco tins, because um, they were given tobacco on the front line, and they kept the tobacco tins, tobacco tins as mementos. Mm. And all these things were in, in the sacks. At this point, now, there must have been millions and millions of First World War veterans still, still alive. And how did you choose from all of those which ones would go on the series? Well, that's a long and complicated question, because the people had written in who were in their thousands. Obviously, millions of them may well have been alive, but also probably many millions of them didn't want to talk about it, because, as you will have heard, a lot of them came home from the front and really didn't want to burden their relatives in particular with what had happened there. They didn't really talk about it. But Tony had advertised, this is Tony Essex, had advertised, and there was a big response. So obviously they, these were people who did want to talk. And they'd written their memoirs out very carefully. And obviously I'm afraid that I didn't have time to read absolutely all of them because some of them are quite frankly mm. illegible for a start. Anyway, I had to choose um, from these which ones I thought might be suitable for interview. And I thought, well, I'd better get them to um, ring me up so I can hear how they speak anyway. Um, and then if they sound sort of possible, I'll have them up to Lime Grove for an interview. Mm. And um, then Tony came to me and said, we need 
about 80 veterans within two weeks because I've booked Ealing Film Studios to do interviews and I want you to do eight interviews a day. So I had to really get my skates on. So one way and another, I had phone ringing all the time, trying to interview people on the phone and then invite them up for interviews at Lime Grove, which I did there, and chose the ones that I thought would probably speak well about it. And then we had to consider, of course, the front where they were, mm. the campaign where they were, the section of the army they'd been in, whether they were officers or men. I mean, we had Navy people as well, and we had quite a few Australians also, although we were doing co-production mm. with ABC television. So they sort of found some of the Australian veterans. And um, so I... I chose out of those who we could possibly interview on film. Was the experience of interviewing them as you'd imagined it, it would be, or, or did it, something surprise you, some of the things they told you, or the way they came across? I had no concept of what I was going to find, so nothing surprised me. Right. I had no idea what they would be like. I didn't know if they would talk sense or not. I had a few close encounters, odd things happening to me, like one of them chased me around the desk with imaginary <laughs> bayonet. Some various, various, very odd things happened, and some of them were distinctly not quite sensible. And you could tell pretty well at once whether they were going to be talking. One of the problems was, were they telling the truth? Now that took me a little while to find out. I had to get kind of used to the whole feel of it before I could find out if they were telling the truth. Because, you know, some people imagined a lot of things. I don't think they were deliberately lying, but people's memories play them tricks a lot of the time. And it's very difficult if you just don't know that front and you don't know what the other people have said to know exactly if it is right or not. You get a feel for it in the end, but it did take me a little while. But I suppose in the end, I mean, I think I interviewed about 260 on film and probably another thousand not on film. And obviously the writers had their own ideas of who they wanted filmed. They wanted somebody, say, from Verdun or they wanted one, somebody from Arras or Passchendaele. So sometimes I had to go out and look for particular ones. Did you find that some of them were maybe withholding some of their wartime memories when they spoke to you? Did you get a feeling there were things they weren't telling you for whatever reason? On the whole, no. So you felt they were all being really frank about what had happened to them? I think so. That's what we wanted. I mean, there has been a suggestion, I think, in the Telegraph that um, we didn't want emotion in the film. That is, of course, complete and absolute nonsense. That is what we wanted. Um, I don't know quite where that idea came from, but it is fundamentally untrue. If you look at the Great War interviews, I mean the films, mm. you will see that there's a, just a lot of emotion in it. And um, we wanted something that wasn't the history. 
the writers were telling the history. We wanted the men to say how they'd reacted to it, what had happened to them, where they'd been, what it had been like, what their friends were like. You know, the thing is they couldn't really make friends because they were so afraid if they made a friend really close to them that they would get blown up and it would be just too upsetting. So they didn't dare really get very, very close. Do you think for some of them it was quite a cathartic experience to talk to you and to talk to the programmes? I think it perhaps was. I think maybe that they hadn't talked about it very much before, mm. but it may have been a cathartic experience. It was certainly a very moving experience for me. I was deeply moved by it, and some, of course there were some who came and I interviewed them, and one of them had been at Passchendaele, and he was an art teacher at rugby, school and he was a very sensitive man and what I used to do was I would light them from the front and I wouldn't be lit so it was like they were I was in darkness and they were there with the photo blow up of whatever um, battle we were talking about and they could really concentrate and I realized just before the film ran out, actually, because we were working on 16mm film and blew it up to 35 to look it more, to make it look more grainy, so that it matched in with the archive footage. And I realised, just before the film ran out, that he wasn't here. He disappeared completely into some other world. Where he was was back at Passchendaele. And I thought, what shall I do? I can't say cut or anything because it may be a shock to him. I think I'm just going to have to wait till he wakes up. So I sat there and we all waited in silence. You could have heard a pin drop in that studio dealing. And finally he woke up and said, where am I? He's almost gone into a trance. He'd gone into a trance. He had gone into a trance. Do you think there's some of this kind of emotional response you were getting from some of these people, does that counter this, this image we have of the stiff upper lip that people just sort of dealt with these things and carried on, do you, do you think? Oh no, we had a lot of stiff upper lip people too. But they weren't universal though? There, there was a, a divergence, was there? What I think, and what the conclusion I came to, that in a lot of cases, the regular officers were stiff upper lip, but the volunteers who came from all walks of life and from all kinds of backgrounds who hadn't been trained in the army noticed everything that was going on around them and spoke on the whole rather better certainly more emotionally on the whole as it wasn't a rule I mean obviously it, it varied but that was my observation at the time And did you notice a difference because it wasn't just um, British veterans. I noticed there were German veterans, for example. Do you notice the difference between how they spoke about the war from the British people? Not particularly. I interviewed several in um, Hamburg, actually. The Germans we interviewed in Germany, the Americans in America, and French in France. Um, and um, not in a particular way. 
we have an absolutely wonderful man called Westman who was a doctor later. I'm not sure what he was during the war, but he was such a wonderful speaker and he was so sensitive. And it was interesting to find, you see, that the truth is they didn't hate each other. They were sorry for the people on the other side and the trenches opposite also. So there was quite a universal feeling among people. Well, you know, we've got, the, we've got the story Henry Williamson tells of the Christmas truce. Mm. And they came across, this was Christmas 1914, and they came across and shook hands and sang Silent Night and exchanged addresses and all these kind of things. And they were sorry for each other, you know. A lot of the time they didn't want to kill. I, Westman says I, he really regretted having to kill. Well, one thing I thought was really interesting that I saw was when you interviewed some of the women at home, did they, because I know some of them seem to have quite a stiff upper lip as well, do you think that was, they were told they had to just carry on with life and this is just what happened? I think there was probably an attitude at that period of just get on with it and don't complain. Mustn't complain. Nowadays we're quite used to having these, these kind of um, series where you buy, you interview lots of veterans or people who went through something. But at the time, was this quite a groundbreaking series in the way it was done? I believe so, yes. I think it probably was. And did that have a big effect on how your future media career and the way you went about things in future? I think I did quite a lot of my own interviewing and I would rather do that than have a front person, you see. Mm. So I started making my little mood films where I could just go out and do little, little films and things. But then I did a lot of archaeology and quite a bit of history and one thing and another and a bit of drama and so it was quite broad. What's your reaction to this, this new film and the fact that this is all being broadcast again for the 100th anniversary? How, how did you feel about that? Well, I think Detlef Siebert, who did it, made it, put it together, has done a lovely job on it and I find it deeply moving and I shall watch it again on uh, Friday. What do you hope that people around the country sort of living in the, in the 21st century will take away from watching this, this programme and then maybe revisiting the original series? Well, I hope they'll learn what wonderful people these were and what they've done for our future. And I hope they will come away with a sense of pride in them. That was Julia Cave. And as I mentioned earlier, I Was There is to be broadcast tomorrow, Friday the 14th of March, on BBC Two at 9pm. And it should be available on the iPlayer after that. Also on the iPlayer, you can now watch extended interviews with the veterans from the series in a collection curated by Sir Max Hastings, who himself was a researcher on the Great War. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views about the podcast on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of those in future episodes. And you can keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And you can follow us on Twitter at History Extra. Plus, do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for lots of history news, features, image galleries, quizzes, and a whole lot more. Next week, we'll be joined by Ben McIntyre to talk about Cold War espionage, while Thomas Dixon will be exploring the history of friendship. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Kent and London. 
and produced by Jack Fletcher. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.